Well, would you please turn to James chapter 5, and we will read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter, concluding our series on James. So James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Seeing how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those, who, those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let, our yes, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you is wandering from the truth, wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. So we have come to the very end of James and what we will do is we make our way through the last part of James chapter 5 is uh, state what it says without any qualification and the reason we're going to do this is because James chapter 1 qualifies James chapter 5 in many ways that if you have followed this series through and you're able to remember what James chapter 1 was about, you'll understand that James chapter 1 began with a church under trial, or at least individuals in the church suffering trials. And God uses trials of various kinds because you cannot create the same result by using the same trial on every person. People are different. And therefore, God understands this because he created us, but more importantly, because we are different, the way God completes us is different than the way he completes the person next to us. We are a different person. And therefore, wisdom dictates that we will be shaped by different means throughout life. Therefore, when one person goes through one trial, it is tempting to think that they have life easier than you because you are going through a trial 
that is more difficult than theirs. And so the temptation to believe that my life would be easier if I were somewhere else and someone else, and therefore my Christian life would be so much easier to live if I was that person or if I had what they had or if I didn't have what they have, whatever it may be. Well, James is drawing all of this to a very clear conclusion that at the end of the day, what it comes down to is how you respond to the Lord in all things. And so at the very beginning of the letter, James introduces us to this idea of being steadfast, of being complete and being steadfast. The trials that we go through will make us steadfast. And now as we get to the end of James, we have this return to the theme. But steadfastness here is seen rather in patience, the ability to be patient with what we face. And there's only one way you can be patient, or at least more patient than what you are right now, and that is by focusing on the Lord's return. So if in chapter one, the focus was on the crown of life at the end of life, then the focus here in chapter five is on the Lord's return, which coincides with the crown of life. Now this bit, I want you to understand because there are two things that are really quite important to appreciate if you're going to understand James 5 correctly. The first is this, that when a person suppresses the truth, that is when they do not confess their sin, that is when they are hiding from the truth, that is when they are walking away from what they know to be true, and they are living an undecided life before God, they, such people, need to be taken backwards. They need to be taken back to the cross. They need to be taken back to the place where they have received mercy and they have received grace. And they need to be reminded all over again of the blood of Christ that saved them and washed away their sins. And now they are forgiven. They need to be taken backwards. But a person who is suffering, a person who is not suppressing the truth, but a person who is truly suffering, well, they need to be taken forward they need to be taken to the place where they remember that Christ will return. So if you're dealing with sin, you need to be taken back to the cross. And if you're suffering, you need to be taken forward to Christ's return. In other words, Viktor Frankl, who survived the Holocaust, went back into psychological practice after he survived the Holocaust. And he had many teenagers come into him and girls in their late uh, late teens and early 20s who couldn't, didn't want to live life anymore. They wanted to give life up. And I don't want to go into all the complications of what that's involved. And Viktor Frankl was listening to these young girls and these young men and couldn't understand why someone so young would want to give up their life so early on. And he had gone through Auschwitz. And then he began to realize that it wasn't their past which was causing their problem. It was their lack of hope for the future. That because they could not see their way forward, they wanted to give up right now. And when you begin to read the Psalms, you begin to realize that the man in the pit, the first thing that the man in the pit loses sight of is the horizon. All that he sees is darkness. And so the way you draw a person up out of the pit is by showing them the future. It is by restoring the horizon. It is by reminding them that Christ is returning. 
And so what we have here in chapter 5 is that restoration principle of remember, Christian, those who are under trial and those of you who are suffering, Christ will return. And when he returns, those trials will go, that suffering will disappear, for the Lord will return. Viktor Frankl put it this way, that what man needs is a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy. Now, we all know that hope to be Jesus Christ. I don't think Viktor Frankl ever got that far. He should have done, but he didn't. So remember, what man needs, what you need, is a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy. And that hope is Christ Jesus, who will come again. So this is essentially what James is doing in chapter 5. How are you going to be steadfast? How are you going to be patient? Well, you move from your past into the future and understand that what God is bringing you through, he's bringing you through so that you would enjoy the future that he has for you. So everything here in James chapter 5 is about patience and prayer. It is about praying, not for patience, but praying while you are being patient for the coming of the Lord as you suffer, as you go through trials, whatever the case may be, this is prayer in the presence of patience as you wait for the coming of the Lord. And so those who wander from the truth as we see at the end of James do so, it would seem, because they lack patience. Itchy feet, itchy ears, and they begin to wander because they are just waiting and waiting and waiting, and they just cannot wait any longer. And so they go off and wander from the truth. So let's look at how James builds this up for us, beginning in verse 7. Notice James begins with an exhortation to be patient and then an explanation for how long you have to be patient. Be patient. For how long? Well, until the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming, and so be patient until then. Then he follows this with an example. So we have the exhortation. Then we have the how, now we have the example. Look at the farmer who is patient in his waiting. Patience involves waiting. And then he moves, verse 8, from patience into the idea that you must establish your heart. In other words, your heart must be patient. Not just patience theoretically in your mind, but you must be patient at a heart level. Remembering that the Lord is coming. Establish your heart with that firm foundation that the future involves Christ's return. And how are we to do this? We are to do it by pursuing righteousness. Well, how do I pursue righteousness? Verse 9, well, don't grumble against one another. If you want to live righteously, don't grumble against one another. And encourage one another. And then he reminds us that the reason you ought to do this, or at least an added motivation, is that the judge is standing at the door. So be patient. Do not grumble against one another. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. Watch your attitude and watch the attitude of others. And then he gives us another example in verse 10 of those who suffered the prophets because they specifically spoke in the name of the Lord. And so what James does is first he takes us to the prophets who suffered because of their righteous speech. And then he takes us to Job 
who suffered because of a divine purpose. Notice this in the text. Both are blessed with their steadfastness, but notice the difference. One is suffering because of the role that they have. The other is suffering, Job, because it is a divine purpose that the God is pouring out in his life. Job never gets to see it. Job never gets to understand the reason why God takes him through what he does, but we do. And we can look back on the life in Job and be encouraged that there is divine purpose to our suffering. And so now we get this deep depth of understanding through the text. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Why? Because there is a purpose to you going through what you go through. It is not something that you could have avoided. It is not something that you can do without and still be made complete. You need this to be the person that God has created you to be. And so to not want it is another way of saying that I don't want to be the person that God is making me. So the prophet suffered, Job suffered. The prophet suffered because of their righteous speech. Job suffered because of the divine purpose. Now I admit that when you get to verse 12, there is a somewhat of a complication. It seems to stand out, it looks a little bit odd. And I don't know what James is thinking, other than perhaps he may be referring to Job's counselors, who gave unwise counsel to Job. And often, people who want to seem right, people who want to speak with a level of authority, will invoke God's name so as to be more authoritative. And James is saying, don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't know everything. You don't know the divine purpose of Job's sufferings. Rather, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't invoke God's name as a guarantee to anything that you say. Now, James moves from this pattern of suffering and the need for patience, now into verse 13 onwards of how to be prayerful. If anyone is you suffering, verse 13, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. If you're sick, then call for the elders to anoint oil and prayer, pray over such a person. And the prayer of faith will save the person who is sick, verse 14 to 16. And so the righteous person, the one who prays, his with no qualification, confessing your sins, remembering that the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working is something that we should not shy away from, but that we should move towards. And the temptation is to move away from it. But when you read James chapter one about wisdom, you begin to realize that James is upping the ante. He is actually putting more weight here in James chapter 5, which we will see in a moment. But what he does is he shows you one of the prophets, and then he explains that Elijah was a man with a nature just like yours. When he prayed, look at what happened. And when you pray, you should expect the same thing. Not because you are different, not because Elijah was different, but rather because who it is that you're praying to. You have a nature just like his. And therefore, no person is shortchanged when it comes to prayer. No person is worse off, unless, of course, you're hiding sin in your heart. You know, we, we hear of the man in the New Testament in Peter where, you know, 
if a man isn't treating his wife properly, then his prayers can be affected. We understand that principle. We understand that, that if you're sinning, then of course God can hold back a particular blessing. But the focus here is not necessarily on the man. The reason for highlighting Elijah's nature is simply to deal with the objections that people might have. Well, that was him, this is me. He could do it, but I can't do it. The emphasis here is we both come to the same God. We both pray to the same God. The focus is not on you. It's on who it is that you are asking for the things that you are asking. And then James' final words is to bring back the person who is wandering from the truth. And I truly believe that the person who wanders from the truth is the one who wanders in suffering because he does not have patience. He looks elsewhere. In other words, James is drawing us to the point that why is it possible, given all the blessings a person would receive, that they would then wander from the truth? I think it has to be impatience. It could be the love of the world, which is just another way of saying that they cannot wait for the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring in. And so let's look at this under two headings. The first one's a short one. Here, the Lord is coming. Live in light of the Lord's coming. How patient are you in waiting for the Lord? And how patient are you in the circumstances that God has given you to live with? They're not really testing your patience. You are to have patience because they are testing how convinced you are about the Lord's return. And yet how often we see circumstances as something which is testing our patience. That's not what James says. Circumstances are not testing your patience. The circumstances are making you steadfast for the Lord's return in which you are to have patience. And so the idea of praying for more patience as something we should never do, I think we should do more of it. That doesn't mean that our circumstances will increase because what we're asking for is to live with the circumstances that God has actually given us. Circumstances are not testing your patience. They are testing your conviction about the future. They are testing how committed you are to the future that God has actually promised you and whether or not you can remain patient in light of that. And so the more convinced you are about the future, the more able you are to be patient. So it's not the circumstances that increases patience. It is your conviction about the future. Hence why James says, be patient for the coming of the Lord. He is giving us the evidence by which we can be patient. Now, the reason we have to be patient is because, as I said, we are not to wander from the truth. But everyone's patience works its way out differently because the circumstances that we live with are different. And so some might argue that this is now testing that we have different things to be patient with. In other words, I am having to exercise greater patience than you are over a situation that you don't have. Well, that's not true either because nobody knows <clears throat> the struggles that each other has. As I've often said, my strength may be your weakness, but your strength may be my weakness. Hence the differences that we live with. 
And so if my strength is your weakness, it's going to be much harder for you than it is for me. But your strength may be why my weakness. And so what is easy for you then becomes hard for me. So it's not so much about the circumstances, it's more about the person. It's more about how we can handle what God gives us. And what God gives us makes us the person that we are becoming in the future. This is what we are to understand. These are the little differences that make the big difference when it comes to living the Christian life. Then you're never tempted to be like the, the you know, the little girl at home who wants to be at school, and then the, the, the child in school who wants to be you know, out in the world working like his dad, and then the dad who wants to be at home like, like mum, who's just being able to do everything, and then the mum who just wants to be like the little girl all over again. And the temptation is, of course, we all want to be somewhere else and someone else because we all think that someone else's life is easier than the life we have to live. But when we understand these differences, when we understand that your strength is my weakness and my weakness, uh, my strength is your weakness, now we begin to see that actually these things are not true. The grass is not always greener and your particular trial may be easier for me than it is for you. But then something you find easy, I find hard. And these are the differences that we have to understand as we live together because if we don't, what is the one thing we will do? We'll begin to grumble against one another. We begin to say, well, you have an easier life than I have. Of course you can do that, because you don't have to deal with what I have to deal with. Of course you're able to do that, because you don't have the pressures that I have. And suddenly we begin to grumble amongst one another, because we haven't truly understood the differences between strength and weaknesses, and the wisdom to understand that we're all different. We do not live the same Christian life. We serve the same Christian Lord, the same Lord in Christ who is Christ. And as we live our Christian life and serve Christ the Lord, we begin to understand that what Christ takes us through is that he is shaping us to be the person he wants us to be. And so James's focus here is be patient. And the way you are to be patient is in the waiting for what is coming. Look at the farmer. The farmer is able to be patient because he knows what is coming. That's how you're able to be patient. So you are able to be patient as a Christian living the Christian life because you know, you are certain, it is in your heart and mind that Christ will return. And so now you begin to enjoy the waiting because you enjoy the ability to be patient because you have a conviction that Christ will return. So it's not hard to imagine at all how your attitudes can change to one another if you are not all looking at the future. If you begin to take your eyes off the future, then it begins to see obvious that the attitudes amongst the fellowship can actually begin to change. The Lord is coming. The judge is standing at the door. Do not be a fool and wander from the truth. Do not be foolish. Do not wander from the truth. Be patient and let your patience receive the confidence that it can get from the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble against one another and do not fall under condemnation by doing so. Rather, live before the Lord in the knowledge 
that he will return. So secondly, the practice. The practice. Patience should be complemented with prayer. And those who are suffering should pray. And those who are suffering should pray hard. Those who are cheerful should sing. And those who sing should sing great. And those who are sick should call for the elders. And I've often wondered, what is it about the sick person that they cannot pray for themselves? Why is it the person who suffer, they're told to pray for themselves? And the person who is cheerful, well, they're told to sing, not by themselves, but maybe with others. But the person who is sick, they are to call for the elders. Why? Well, is it possible that as you serve people in the church, that some person can be so physically or even spiritually sick that they cannot actually bring themselves to prayer? In other words, is it really the case that the harder life gets, the easier it is to pray? Or is it actually the other way around? That actually the harder life gets, the more difficult it is to pray. And therefore, is it possible for you to become so sick, so spiritually drained, that you cannot bring yourself to God in prayer? I'll give you an example. Back in the day, uh, when I had a business, uh, I, uh, I learned cash flow the very hard way. And that was, I had a 40-day payment policy that if I did work for you, I would expect to be paid within 40 days of completing the job. And I went to do some big work for some big, big high-flying company, and they didn't tell me that they had a 60-day 60 60 payment policy. And so as I was doing the work and as I was completing the work, and then I moved on to other jobs, I was waiting for that money. So I had a 27-day gap. And you would have thought that the most natural reaction to do is just to go ahead and do more work to get more money coming in. But actually what I did instead was not go out to work and began to worry whether or not the money was going to turn up. And as I began to stay at home wondering whether or not the money was turning up, not going to turn up at all, I wasn't out working. And then because I wasn't out working, I wasn't bringing in any money. And so the very thing that I should have been doing, I wasn't doing. I was doing the very opposite. And I began to realize that in the Christian faith, it's almost exactly the same. That the very point at which your life gets harder and you have more trials and therefore you should pray more, you end up praying less. You end up thinking more and you end up worrying more. Instead of actually getting to business, instead of actually doing the work of prayer, you're actually doing the work of worry. A bit like me not going out and earning, trying to earn more money until the 67 days were up and I got paid. Why is it that we default to worry? Why is it that we default to thinking these things through as if we can make them better just by worrying about them? And we can't. And so the same things to happen with trials, that when a person suffers, is it possible that they can suffer to such an extent where they default to the position where they don't pray more, they actually worry more? They don't get down on their knees more often they, they run around the house scratching their head, lifting things up and down, just pacing out of worry. So is it possible that this man has got himself into this type of position? Is it physical sickness? Is it spiritual sickness? Whatever it is, he is told to call for the elders. Now why? Is there something special about the elders that is not true of anybody else in the congregation? No, I don't think so. I think your prayer for a person who is sick is just as powerful as my prayer for a person who is sick. 
And while I don't want to go down the road of sacerdotalism, which means that there is the belief that the only way God's means of grace is communicated is through those who are ordained to communicate it, such as the Lord's Prayer, such as, sorry, the Lord's Table, or the Word of God, or baptism. And so these are the only way God's grace is communicated. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think God's grace is communicated in those things regardless of the man. Nevertheless, God has appointed elders. And the elders are to, are to live righteous lives. They are to live a faith-filled life. They are to set an example to the congregation. And therefore, they are to come out and pray and minister and pray believing all the things that I have just said. And so perhaps this is a safeguard that because the qualifications for eldership are so high, that this is a way of safeguarding the congregation from anybody praying who is perhaps hiding sin in their heart. Hence why the command to confess your sins to one another. Why? Because it's able to get in the way of not only your praying before God, but also your relationship with one another. We see this in the, in the Gospels, where if you have an offering, um, don't bring it, go make amends with your brother, and then bring your offering. We see the principle again of uh, confessing your sins and doing right before the Lord. And so the point here is, is that when you pray, when you pray following what James is saying, do you default to worry or are you going to pray more? In other words, let me put it this way. When you pray, what do you expect to happen? When you get down on your knees and you pray, when you're in your room on your own and you pray, when you pray around the Lord's table, what are you expecting to happen? Are you expecting the Lord to hear you? Well, yes. Are you expecting the Lord to respond? Well, yes. Well, how are you expecting the Lord to respond? What does it mean to pray in faith? So I have a few things to point out about this. Number one, and that is that God does not give us the opposite of what we ask for. The whole point of Luke 11, after the Lord's Prayer, where you have a friend who goes to a friend at midnight, and of course, this is not speaking about the reluctancy of God being unwilling to get out of bed. And as long as you pestering him, as long as you pester God enough, he will eventually get up and give you what he wants. No, it's the very opposite. Because God is not like that, he will get up the moment you ask him. He, he, he doesn't even have to get up. He's awake. He will be there and answer your prayer. And then Jesus gives us the illustration about a natural father who gives to his children not the opposite of what they asked for, but exactly what they asked for. And then Jesus compares this to God the Father, and how much more will God the Father give to you that which you ask for? And then he goes on to speak about the Holy Spirit. The point is here is, do you really believe that when you come to God in prayer and you pray for X, that God will give you X? That God will not give you the opposite of what you have asked for? Because that is what seems to be what Psalm 11, uh, sorry, Luke 11 is teaching us. And now this is where you want me to qualify. This is where you want me to say, well, can you qualify this? Because this sounds a little bit sort of loose here. Well, I'm, I'm going to up the ante a little bit more. When James says here to pray and to pray in faith, 
Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, how many of us want that verse to be qualified rather than just take it as it is? How many of us want to go, yes, but I want, and let's qualify it further. Well, let me up the ante. Let's reverse, let's take out the sickness, let's take out the healing, and let's replace it with wisdom. What does James call us to pray for in James chapter 1? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you to do? You're to ask God, and God will graciously, generously give you wisdom. And he'll give it to the person who does not doubt. Now, let me ask you, do you believe that if you ask God for wisdom, you will receive wisdom? Then why should it be any different here in James 5, just because it says healing instead of wisdom? Right, for some reason, there's something in this that just want to qualify it because we're used to living with people who are not healed. But I don't think that is how we're meant to live. The point here is that James is following, mirroring the same prayer here in, in James chapter five as he does in James chapter one. The only difference is that he is exchanging wisdom now for healing. The person who prays for wisdom in James chapter one receives wisdom if he asks and does not doubt. And the person who prays for healing in James chapter five receives healing. And there's no reason why we should believe one more than the other. But how tempted we are to do so because we live in a world full of suffering. And so the question here is about whether or not you are believing God when you speak to him in prayer. It doesn't mean that you will get, but it's whether or not you believe as you speak to God in prayer, do you really believe that God will give you the opposite of what you have asked for? The opposite of what is according to his will. Is it not the case that God can heal a person just as easily as he can give a person wisdom? If you expect to receive wisdom in James chapter 1, then why wouldn't you expect to receive healing in James chapter 5? So the question here is not what God can do, it's what God does do. And this takes us back to the patient waiting and suffering. This is where we're taking back to the reality that God does keep his word and we must be patient as he keeps his word. This is the point that James is making. You are not to lower your expectation because it didn't turn up at the time that you expected it to turn up. Rather, you are to have a very high expectation that God will do exactly what he promised to do. But the distinction we are making is the distinction between what God can do and what God does do in the time he has chosen to do it. Hence why we're taking back to the beauty of the coming of the Lord and the patient waiting as we wait for God to keep his promise. So I want you to be encouraged this morning as you read James to take the words as they are without qualification other than the additional qualification James gives in James chapter 1. That if you can pray for wisdom and get it, then why shouldn't you pray for the healing of an individual and get it as well? 
The question is not when it turns up. The question is not how God will do it, but when God will do it. Because he has promised that he will. And it's that patient waiting that then causes us to wander from that truth. Because we can't be patient, because we struggle to be patient, we then wander away from the truth, then believing, was it ever true in the first place? It is true. But this is why the wanderer begins to wander, because he cannot live in patience for what the Lord has promised that he would do, ultimately, in his return. So let me conclude with this. The way that you will be more patient than, way, than what you are right now is by being more convinced of the future than you are right now. If you want to be a more patient Christian, then you need to be a Christian who is more convinced about the coming of the Lord. And when you're more convinced about the coming of the Lord, you are less likely to be impatient and you are therefore less likely to wander from the truth. This is James's concern. He wants you to stay and walk a close and clean life with God. And so therefore, this morning, as we conclude James, be steadfast, be patient. Remember the Lord is coming. Remember the judge stands at the door. Remember that all suffering has a divine purpose. And so be patient and establish your heart until the Lord returns. Amen. Let me pray for us before we sing. Father God, may we take you at your, take you at your word. May we listen to you clearly without our doubts complicating what you have said or causing your words to come to us as though they cannot be completely trusted. Father God, may we receive, hear your word and receive your word. And may your spirit convict us of all that is true. In Jesus' name, amen.